While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week we talk about a book that you probably should have read by now, or at least by someone you should have heard of recently or ever. <laughs> that tends well to be the the way we operate. Yeah. So we all. So one of us reads a book and then explains it to the other one and to you, the listener. But before we get into that boring business, Andrew, you wanted to talk about cider. You took a cider class. I did. I took a cider, cider brewing class today. So we've it, brewed how many beers? We've brewed three beers. And you brewed an additional pumpkin. You beer cheated on me and brewed another beer. How'd that go? It Actually, we just tasted, we tasted it this weekend, and it's great. <sighs> it's really good. So I'm batting... <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, it turned out awful. And I'll never I mean, do it again. <laughs> one of the three beers we made, we universally love. Yes, I think the other two are fine. Right? Yes. Okay. Wait, oh no, we we've made beered, four beers. No, we've made four beers. Dog. We made four beers across three sessions. Yes, of yes. brewing. <laughs> okay. Um, so you decided to take a cider class, though, to branch out. Yeah, like Susanna and I wanted to wanted to do it just to have some fun. And beer brewing is this like it's a multi step process where you have to steep grains and get the the sugars and stuff out of them and it takes like four hours and cider brewing like if you just want to pour a gallon of pasteurized cider into a sanitized jug and leave it to just like <laughs> ferment with whatever yeast is floating in the air like that's what you do to make hard cider Okay, just air yeast. Yeah, you or don't even just cover whatever, it up. What whatever's in it? Well, you put a you put a cap on it, but but then how does the air yeast get in there? There are there are some yeast bits in there, I guess. And Weird you just, that you just let them uh, and the natural apple sugars thing. ferment. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, you can do it the hard way, where you're like juicing apples, and I think it. 16 pounds of apples Ooh, makes a gallon of cider. That's so many. That's, that's a lot of so apples. Many apples. It's like 30 apples. Oh my God. So you can juice a bunch of apples and do the whole thing or you can just buy like a good gallon of cider from a farmer's market and um pour it in a jug. And and there are other things you can do like you can add, you can you get up to like 160 degrees, which is the pasteurization temperature. Okay. And then you add in, like, you can add in different kinds of sugar or spice or whatever it is that you want. Everything nice. Yeah. Right. And then you put it in a jug, and then you can put your own yeast in there. Ooh, so you can add yeast to it. Yeah, and I think most people usually do. But um, the like before we figured out, we as a society figured out how beer worked or how alcohol worked. Yeah. You just leave apple juice around, and it would turn into alcohol. <laughs> well, that's wine. Wine is just grapes that we grape juice that we just didn't get to yet. Yeah, apple apple cider, like hard cider, is basically apple wine. 
That's how it was described. In Apple class. wine. So I don't know if this is like a funny conversation that we're <laughs> it's having, just, but it's vaguely informative. That's kind of interesting. I think our show toes Cider the line. Our, our show in general is either funny or vaguely informative. Never both. <laughs> Never both at the same time. So buckle in, everybody. Andrew, what are we going to vaguely inform people about this week? All right. We it is properly October now. Oh yes, we're in Spooktober yeah, or whatever you want to call it. In, yeah, Spook Overdue presents Spooktober. <laughs> <laughs> and um so yeah, last week we read The uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was hardly spooky at all. Hardly spooky. Perhaps rich with characters, but hardly spooky. Hardly spooky. And this week I read Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, which is a little little heavier on the spooks. Yeah, it's got say. some more spooks. It's got a few more spooks than the legend of the guy who got a pumpkin thrown at him. Now I heard that this was a film. It later became a film, yeah. With Mia Farrow in it, right? That, yeah, that's... and uh directed by Roman Polanski. Who oh was, hey. yeah, who <laughs> uh oh. was very, very, very interested in, in being true to the book. And so the film is I've never seen it actually, but it's very well regarded. I've seen parts of it. I feel like it was a a film that, like, my family was watching once, and I was wandering in and out of the room, going, "That's weird." <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the reading I was doing on it was that uh, let's get the adaptation stuff out of the way before we get into the book. Mm-hmm. But that it was really early in Polanski's career, and I think Levin is quoted as saying that he's fairly certain that Polanski didn't know that he could take liberties. <laughs> <laughs> or that he was at least young enough to not want to take a bunch of liberties, so stuck pretty pretty true to the book. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I was reading um, some trivia about it, and apparently Polanski would ask him, you know, like, what what color is Rosemary wearing in the scene or whatever? Like, he was yeah. very, very interested in getting the details right, and not just the details that are in the book, but also the details that are kind of implied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought Seems that, that was interesting. What were you able to suss out about Ira Levin? He d- he doesn't have the for someone who has written some fairly substantial twentieth century hits, which we'll get to in just a second. He doesn't have the like a lot of more modern authors. He doesn't have that kind of body of study devoted to him. Yeah, um, he was born in nineteen twenty nine, um, died in two thousand seven, so not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly, you know, for most of his life, um, lived in Manhattan. Okay. And um, he wrote his first novel, A Kiss Before Dying, in 1953. Cool. Um, he was also a playwright of some his, of some renown. Yeah, um, his big thing was Death Trap, right? Yeah, which is a great name for anything. <laughs> Death Trap. And I think what's that play is supposed to be a play about people making a play that is might as well be called death trap and okay. people like kill each other in the play and then that becomes a play that they you know it's kind of matryoshka doll of a comic thriller i suppose <laughs> yeah so um he had that career as a playwright and i i imagine that's why you know there were some lengthy pauses between his books sometimes so he i mean his first novel was kiss before dying in 53 and then he didn't write his second one which is rosemary's baby until 67 mm-hmm. um probably the 
biggest other book in his oeuvre. His short little list here is um, The Stepford Wives, which is in 72. Yeah. Which has which was a movie at least once, I think twice, twice. right? Like more twice. recently with John Lovitz. Yeah, John Lovitz, Nicole Kidman, <laughs> uh what's his face? Ferris Bueller was in it. Oh, what's his face? What is his name? That guy. You, you gotta tell me his name, Andrew. What's his face? You're the one who brought him up. Michael Nelson. No, that's Mystery Science Theater. Michael um, Brantley plays for the Cleveland Indians. I, is it not Matthew Broderick? Oh, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Milton Bradley. <laughs> Milton Bradley. <laughs> yeah, I don't know I could, how I could forget that because his old face in that movie just looks like a weird Dorian Gray Ferris Bueller. <laughs> every, time nice I, every time I see him, I'm just... It, the problem with people who have youthful visages who we encounter at a young age, like it's going to happen to Kenan Thompson too. On SNL, yeah, from Keenan. Is that Kel. like you think about that a lot? You think well, about. Keenan I read an getting article old? about about him the other day, and they showed a bunch of pictures of him, and he might as well just be a bigger version of the fifteen-year-old that was on Nickelodeon. <laughs> and I don't mean like he like gained a bunch of weight; he's just taller. Yeah, because he's thirty or oh god, that makes me feel old. Anyway, um, yeah. So Stepford Wives is his other big one, um, and then he wrote The Boys from Brazil in '76, and then did not write another novel until he wrote Silver in 1991. And the um, did he go to jail? Like what happened? No, the story I read was that he he was just like at a party. He was invited to a party where a lot of other authors were, and they you know were all actively publishing stuff, and it made him feel like a fraud. Because he hadn't written any novels in a long time, so he went home and like banged it out in a few months and published it. Do you know how it was That's received? Um, I think Silver is reasonably. I don't think his later work has the following that his earlier work did. I think Silver is generally well received. Um, and then his last novel, Son of Rosemary. Which oh is a sequel, no, a sequel to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> Is generally has generally been panned for but, reasons that I think I would I want to talk a little bit about Son of Rosemary at the end. I didn't read it, but okay, it it um, has interesting implications for this book. Great, I oh god. He also wrote a musical called Drat the Cat, which ran for only eight performances. <laughs> ah, that's so good. So that's what I've got about Ira Levin. I love stuff like that. I, I love it. Like, do you think that? He has not been studied as much because his stuff is like popular literature instead of like capital L dead white guy literature. That's probably true. I I think we'll also get into this when we start talking about the book. But from what I could tell, Rosemary's Baby and, and Levin seemed to take this narrative on himself. Mm -hmm. Um, He seemed to see Rosemary's Baby as like a progenitor of a certain genre of film and story that perhaps is bigger than ira levin in a way um and like someone like stephen king exists so that i suppose ira levin will not get this will never get that level of attention you Mm -hmm. know well Um, but i mean stephen king and a lot of others cite levin as a as an inspiration. That, yes. So, yeah. Uh, I think, but I think Levin's version of that story is I created a thing and then, a, a, you know, all of his major books became 
movies at least once. Yeah. So I, I, I think that he, like with um, movies like The Omen and like other, you know, other movies and works that are obsessed with Satanism and stuff, like he, he feels personally responsible for the spread of some of that in a way that I don't like, I honestly don't know whether that's justified or not. Um, yeah, he seems I can't to... tell if it's because it's it's real or if he just is like making it about him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair read on it. He seems to have a, a really interesting self-awareness about his career. Uh the exact quote that was in his um Times obituary, I think, was he told the Los Angeles Times in 2002, not only was he excited that Stepford was an adjective <laughs> mm-hmm. that people use and maybe don't even know is from his book, um I feel guilty that Rosemary's Baby led to The Exorcist, The Omen, he told the LA Times in 2002. A whole generation has been exposed, has more belief in Satan. I don't believe in Satan, and I feel that the strong fundamentalism we we have would not be as strong if there hadn't been so many of these books. Of course, I didn't send back any of the royalty checks. (laughs) (laughs) So, he can have a, like, I, I wonder, I don't... I don't know, having not written a book about anything so nefarious that then became a pop culture touchstone, I don't know mm-hmm. what type of responsibility you feel for that, if mm-hmm. at all. It's, it seems like a bit, bit of a leap to equate it with right-wing fundamentalism. but Yeah, though, I mean, it may be one of those cases where if he hadn't done it, someone else would have done it. Like he just happened to be writing about the right thing at the right time. Yeah, I mean that it's it's always hard to say what would have happened if Ira Levin had been zapped off the face of the earth in 1966. And and people would have found something to be outraged about and and rallied around if it had not been this book and this yeah. movie. So let's talk about this book. Yeah, what is um, Rosemary's Baby about, Andrew? Rosemary's Baby, the book, and I understand the film <laughs> are. Um, they define a lot of tropes that oh, we fun. still see in lots of horror movies today. And like they have become sort of cliche at this point, but this is the book that generated a lot of them. And I I feel like a lot of the time when at least when the work is done well, it's still like even old stale stuff still feels fresh in a way when when you're reading the source, I don't know if that's if we've that's... encountered that before. I think we, you know, yeah. we encountered that with Jekyll and Hyde a bit. We, encou- I know, we kind of encountered that with Frankenstein. Some of these, the the original versions of certain genres tend to feel tend to stay fresher long after their uh, imitators kind of start to feel stale. Right, and um, so yeah, I mean, you can map out. You can lay out the broad plot of Rosemary's Baby and probably come back with like half a dozen horror films from the last decade that have used that have used all of it or parts of it to to um, construct their narrative. So you have you know you have the young family. There's Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse. That's a great name. Um, That's yeah, such he, a good name. What I does he do? What his original name was, but he changed it because he's an actor. Oh, oh his original name was something Jewish, and so he changed it. <laughs> oh, the character changed it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's even better. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's pretty good. And um, 
and they are young and in love and they are moving and they live in New York City. They live in New York City in, you know, this is set in the 60s. So it was set, you know, at the time it was being written and um, they are moving to an apartment that they don't really like. And then they find out that a uh, an apartment in the Bramford, which is this big old building that is um, based on the actual Dakota building in New York. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which, I've um, seen that on Cash Cab. Yeah, the Dakota <laughs> is like, it's it's all over the place. It's where John Lennon got shot. It's in lots of movies, like lots of celebrities and stuff have lived there. So um, look up pictures of that and I guess you will see the type of building Bramford kind of looks yeah. like, kind of big and imposing and castly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so an apartment opens up in there. And Rosemary's just like, oh, my goodness, I wanted an apartment and the apartment that we've signed a lease on that I told myself would be fine is in retrospect, it's garbage. and I don't want to live there. Greener pastures, (laughs) man. We've got to go see. We've got to go see the apartment. So they go. They see the apartment. Its occupant has recently passed away Uh um, after being in a coma briefly. Um. And they, I mean, they weasel out of their lease and they, they decide to move in. Okay. And so, okay. So you've got the young and in love couple who move into a new place and then it slowly becomes apparent. um, And it becomes apparent to the reader way earlier than it becomes apparent to any of the characters. that something strange is afoot. Uh Oh, something's happening here. They have these neighbors um, called Minnie and Roman Castavet, I think is how you pronounce the last name. Sure. Or Castavet. I'll go with Castavet. Castavet. Castanets. And they were friends with the previous occupant, and they are looking after this girl named Terry, who is like a young recovering drug, drug addict. And shortly after Terry and Rosemary meet, um, Terry throws herself out of the window and kills herself oh. for, for reasons that are not explained to the reader at the time. Oh, no. Um, and this feeds in like Rosemary and Guy were told by Rosemary's friend Hutch, who's like an older um, gentleman who Rosemary has a platonic friendship with. That's, that, that seems totally fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the, the Branford is this creepy old building and there's this history of like murders and suicides and they found a dead baby in the basement does she think that hutch is just trying to get her away from guy is Hutch like that no that's the no that's not how their relationship works okay just it was it's a thing where like when rosemary first moved to the city like hutch was a nice neighbor oh and even though he's like older they hit it off and they're still he's the old man from home alone Maybe is like the, he's friendly after he's a he's a friendly old man who dispenses sage advice. Yeah, so he's the whole he's the old man from Home Alone, except without um, the part I, where they all thought he was a murderer. In my head, he's played by Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> That's who my imagination has cast in the role of Hutch. Let alone whoever the heck actually played him in the movie. Let's ignore that. Let's not even look that up. Because in my mind, it's Stephen Fry. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, And so Hutch, you know, kind of is a little on edge about it because they've heard all kinds of weird stuff. And then the suicide happens and they and Guy keeps telling her, oh, you're being 
crazy. You're, you know, you're imagining things. You're just getting yourself worked up. Now, is she a housewife? What does she do all day? She is she is mostly a housewife. She does other stuff out and about the city, but um, like yeah, he I mean, goes off is, and acts. This is, yeah, he goes. I mean, he's God. he's modestly successful. Like he was in a couple good commercials, but he's having trouble making the leap from commercials to bigger work. Okay, so they have money, but he's a little bit frustrated in his career, which comes back into the narrative a little bit later on. Great. Um, so they, you know, they move in and they're generally pretty happy and they're still young and in love and everything is optimistic and, and, um, their old neighbors, Minnie and Roman come over and invite them for dinner and Guy and Rosemary both think they're a little old and a little kooky, but they decide to go over because like Terry has just died and they like, they want to like talk about it and. Just, like, be friendly. You gotta be nice to them, you know? And so Rosemary's a little, like, she eats the food, but she doesn't like it very much. And they both think that they're, the people are weird. And What do you mean, what um, do you mean she doesn't like it very much? Like, she it's thinks just, it's... She doesn't, she doesn't like how it tastes. It tastes weird. It's like, overcooked, you, or it's... There's, like, a steak that's overcooked. There's, like, a pie that has a weird aftertaste to it. I mean, most of us have those, like, elderly... All my elderly all elderly relatives are really good at cooking, but I think everyone has in their life like a an elderly person who makes food but isn't like awesome at it. Okay, and I'm worried that's going to be gross. me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm okay at food. I overcooked some noodles today. Like what You're the way F? better at food than you used to be. Oh, I'm way better at food than I used I to. I mean, be. it would be hard to be <laughs> to be worse. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did once Oh, okay, pause this book. I think I, we've already told the bacon story. No, we're not talking about the bacon story. We're talking like about the story though. where I once uh, set a pot of rice going, mm-hmm. like boiling a pot of rice. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to save time. I'm going to go run and take a quick shower. <laughs> well. You have time if you play your cards right. I did not play my cards right because I came out of the shower and all the smoke alarms in my house were going off because I was burning <laughs> rice. And so I was running downstairs. I had nothing on but pajama pants. All and right. then guess what happened? My roommate came home with his parents, whom I'd never met. They had <laughs> gone to brunch, and I was setting rice on fire. <laughs> and you you shirtless in the kitchen with rice on fire. <laughs> Some sort of caveman that had moved in with their son how and didn't know how to work the oven. Like three years ago? How long ago was this? Yeah, this was within like two or three months of, of me moving into the city in, what was that, 2011, I guess. Yeah. Geez. So <laughs> it was, I'd, oh God. So you've gotten better. I have gotten better. Um, But I do, I do know that there are foods that I can still mess up like these neighbors. Um, yeah, so they, I mean, they have kind of a strange time, but Guy likes Roman's kooky old stories. Okay. I would like his kooky old stories. Yeah. And, um, so they, you know, they go back to the apartment and they're like, oh, that was weird, but whatever. And then, um, a couple nights later, Guy goes back because he says he wants to hear Roman's, more of Roman's weird stories. (laughs) Okay. And Rosemary is like, well, I'm just going to stay here because I thought they're kind of creepy. Okay, okay. And the rest of the book, it's like 
there's this ominous feeling because you, the reader, know that something is off uh-huh. and Rosemary is not quite there yet. Like Guy sort of starts acting a little bit distant. And then um, a guy who beat him out for a, a big role in a play is suddenly stricken blind and Guy is called in to replace him. Oh. And his, his career starts taking off. Okay. And then um This is cause guys hanging out with Roman? I don't know, maybe. Actually, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this I'm I'm I don't wanna I don't wanna go out of order because I wanna I wanna describe like the creeping Oh get okay. Of, sorry, 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 sorry. Terror. I'm trying to No, it's it's cool. Um trying to figure this book out. Yeah, and it's just like guys hanging out he's hanging out with Minnie and Roman a lot. And whenever he and Rosemary have like big conversations about stuff, he will like find a way to go out. And you know, he says he's gonna go get ice cream or something, but he goes over to Minnie and Roman's to <laughs> to talk. That seems dumb. <laughs> and after, you know, after some time, he comes home and says, "I finally want kids." Okay, which is something and she's wanted. It, it was something that she's wanted, and the way I mean. The way that it's phrased really drives home the fact that this is still 1965. Okay. Like, this is not the 60s as we think of the 60s has not happened so much yet. Oh, and like, so the, he tells what, her, what, rephrase like, that. sexual revolutions and things. No, we're still a few years from that. Yeah. Um, so he says, you know, I've been so focused on my career. I think now it's time to focus on yours. By which, which is racist child rearing. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> okay, Ira Levin. Good, good All work. Right. Yeah, product of your time, I guess. Um, and so they start trying to have a baby, and one night, uh, Minnie comes over with some like pudding. For dessert, because they're having like a romantic night in, and they start eating the pudding, and Rosemary's like, "This is weird pudding. I don't like this pudding," and and um and Guy is like, "Well, she brought over the pudding, so you really should eat all of it because she worked really hard on the pudding, and why don't you like the stuff that she gives you? They're just trying to be nice." And so she like begrudgingly eats most of the pudding and then scrapes the rest of it in the trash, and then shortly afterwards she passes out. Okay. And um, Rosemary sometimes has dreams, but the reader always knows that, like, whatever weird character is speaking in the dream is actually a person speaking in real life. And we know who the person is and what they're talking about. But she has this vivid dream where she's surrounded by Guy and Minnie and Roman and a bunch of their friends. And they're all naked and they draw a weird symbol on her body. And then, like, this yellow-eyed thing has sex with her. What? And um, and she wakes up in the morning, and she's, like, scratched a little bit, and she's sore. And Guy's like, oh, after you passed out, I had sex with you. And I scratched you up? And she was like, I, that's a little weird. Okay, I guess. And then and then she's pregnant, and the pregnancy is, is weird. Like, she goes to a, a doctor... And he, you know, takes some takes a blood sample and then he tells her, oh, you know, just we need you to come back in for another sample. And then Minnie and Roman intercept 
and say, well, really, you need to go to this other doctor. Oh, no. They have a special is, doctor. Yeah. And, and that doctor is like, well, don't, you know, you shouldn't read any books. God. Don't talk to any of your friends because everybody's pregnancy is different. And they're just going to try and convince you that, you know, what you're going through is strange. And so, you know, the cast of and Guy in large part, like, isolate her from the outside world. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what you um, should definitely do. Yeah. And then, you know, after... When you have a weird dream baby, you should definitely <laughs> not talk to anyone about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... Let's let's stop and discuss, I guess. What like, is, what is there to discuss? This is terrible. It's just the thing that I... There, like the whole last half of this book, I basically sped through in a day because I was really like caught up in it, and I really wanted her to like figure out what was going on, which she she does figure it out, and she tries to go back to the first doctor, and she explains all the stuff that she's figured out, like there's witchcraft going on, and something something really strange is happening, and they're trying to take my baby to do who knows what with it. And the doctor, you know, acts like he understands, but then calls her husband and the other doctor because he thinks she's being crazy. So, yeah. like, there's another trope, like the one person who knows something is wrong but can't convince anybody else. Yes. Oh, the oh god. There's yeah. A myriad of Jodie Foster films have been based on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know something's wrong, and no one believes me. So yeah, we've you know we've got the we've got the. Woman the versus the happy young family kind of that moves into a weird new house. We've got the spooky neighbors, um, and then you know, and then she gives birth to a half devil baby. Okay, and she really like her initial thought is well, the right thing to do is to throw it out the window and then jump out after it. But then she talks herself into thinking that he's a little cute and she like rocks his cradle and all the cult members are like, hail Rosemary. And that's kind of the end of the book Ah! where she's just like becoming mommy to a devil baby Ah! and like convincing, convincing herself like, Oh, he can't be all bad. Like there's half a decent normal human in there. And I'm sure that I can bring that out. And the fact that he's literally half Satan will not be a big deal. (laughs) No, Big mistake. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's the plot. Like, so did you... Okay, so here's a good question. You were recommended this book, yeah? Based um, on I our... I so. I don't remember. I think it was from the Facebook thread. Okay. I could be wrong, though. What did you know about it going... Did you know that this was going to happen in some vague sense? I didn't know what. Like, I didn't... I guess I didn't know where the lines between, you know, the fact... Like, what actually happened in the book and, like, stuff that was a dream or, like, stuff that didn't happen. Like, basically, I didn't know, like, how much of the baby do we see? How, what, like, who's the book about? And it ends up being mostly about Rosemary, like, coming to the slow realization that everyone in her life is lying to her and conning her Mm. into having this devil baby. Okay. Because, yeah, originally, you know, Terry, the, the woman who's living with them was supposed to be the candidate and the previous owner of the apartment had been involved in the cult but mm-hmm. then wanted to get out so they put her into a coma and then killed her um hutch comes over to talk with rosemary and he notices all the weird stuff going on 
and he calls her and says, you know, I need to meet with you. We need to talk about something. And, and Rosemary tells Guy, who like immediately goes and tells the Castavets, and then they put him into a coma, and then he dies. Like, oh it's, no! It's and I feel like that's another trope. Like the people who are, you know, the people who come this close to to warning you, like while there's still time to do anything about it. Oh, something happened. Oh, something always happens to them. Yeah, and then like there's another thing where she. She, you know, she's been pregnant for a while. She's in this. She's in constant pain for months, which the doctor convinces her is normal. And she's just sick of seeing the Casavets and all their weird old friends. And she tells Guy, you know, we're having a dinner party. We're having all of our regular friends over. And you know, they the they have a conversation. She and some of her other female friends have a discussion in the kitchen where it is obvious to everyone else that her pregnancy is abnormal. And they try and convince her to go back and see the first doctor again. But then, you know, magically her pain clears up and she becomes Hmm. happy and complacent again. And it's basically about keeping her just enough in the dark for just long enough to let, you know, the pregnancy take and let everything happen the way it's supposed to. Do you think... Okay, so here's... Here's something I read. I was doing a little okay. bit of reading about. <laughs> that was a wonderful setup. Here's a thing by me. Here's a thing. I was doing a little bit of reading about the book, and um, someone reviewing the book, not like quite reviewing it, but like rereading it. Um, when the I guess ten years after the Criterion Collection came out, or mm-hmm. when the Criterion Collection came out, um, of the film, they went back and read the book, and they were giving the book credit for having an extra layer of for lack of a better word humor or dark humor or i don't know exaggeration about the situation that the the film was far more self-serious about does is that would you find that to be the case is there any kind of caricature to their situation as a young couple encountering this whole situation I I I was expecting it to be more yeah more serious and more like there there are a lot of happy moments in this book for Rosemary. Okay. And I was not I was expecting it to be kind of doom and gloom the whole time. Okay. Um I wouldn't I don't know if I go as far as to say there's dark humor like there are some laugh lines. Okay. You know every once in a while for lack of a better word like it's not it's not it's not a trying to bring the yucks or anything. <laughs> Like, it's not, it's not like Dave Barry wrote this book or something. (laughs) But yeah, it it is, it is unexpectedly light in spots and it helps to cut the tension a little bit. Okay. But in the same way, like, I don't want to say it's comical, like the number of times she has to realize something is going on and the number of times she is just barely intercepted. And it has, it, I mean, most of it, I don't know. There's some interesting threads to pull here. Like if Rosemary talked less with her husband and told him less of what was going on in her life, she would probably have been fine because mm. the Castavets only really find out stuff about her through Guy. Oh, like, okay. You know, when she's when she's gonna go back to the regular doctor, she tells Guy, and, and then he then, tells you know, them. Yeah, and then so she gets intercepted, and 
like she read was reading a book that Hutch was Hutch had given her about witchcraft and Satanism, and she finds out that Roman is the son of a cult leader who had lived in the Bramford house, like at the turn of the century, I think. And Guy just kind of hand waves everything away, and then throws the book away, and tells Minnie and Roman, and they. It's just it's a series of near misses, mm. where if any, where if any one of them had gone better, like the end of the book would not have come to pass. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too if that's part of the the horror situation, for lack of a better word, or horror for for the best word. I don't know that um, Levin's kind of setting up his his essay that went along with that film collection talks about um, a fetus. Well, he, (laughs) I'm jumping ahead. He talked about how the anticipation is the most important part of a horror story. Yeah. Like that's definitely true of this book. The suspense before whatever the horror is appears. And he came upon the idea of, a pregnancy being an excellent form of that suspense because you have nine whole months of a tangible question mark like yeah. inside your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he went on to say, like, I had, I had two ways to go. It could be aliens or Satan, and someone else had already written about aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so he picked Satan. Um, yeah, that's 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 an interesting point because the Satan baby only really shows up in the book's final pages. Yeah, of course. Because otherwise the book would be about raising Satan toddler. And yeah. that's what the sequel is for, which we'll talk about. Yeah, that's about. what Son of Rosemary gets <laughs> gets around to. But. Um, but I think then what it accomplishes is, without doing so in some kind of like specific allegorical way, which I think would probably maybe cheapen the book, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, does it feel like it's directly trying to exaggerate young couple fears or is it just using those stereotypical young couple experiences to tell an interesting horror story um because it, it does it it doesn't sound like it's an allegorical tale in this no i mean there, there are elements becomes. in here and that's it's something that i would have to try and pay closer attention to if i read through it again but like Rosemary is kind of a lapsed Catholic mm-hmm. who still, you know, has this ingrained respect of the Pope and stuff. Like <laughs> she is barely religious. Okay. And I guess the implication is like maybe if she had been more religious, she would have had more chances to figure stuff out. But like at the end of the book, you know, everybody is actually saying, Hail Satan, God is dead, which Oh God is, is a cliche. Oh. Of course that's a huge cliche now to say Hail Satan. That's like you could buy that on a t shirt in Hot Topic now. Like yeah, Hail Satan, God is dead. <laughs> Adventure time characters. And people would base they wouldn't even bat that bat an eye at that if you wore that to school, but they would take your cell phone, except not anymore because cell phones are like part of you. Yeah. Like it's it's like it's this book's hell is other people. Like the thing that belongs in the book and works in the book but has gone on to just become a trope in cliche. cliche. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Um is there other like um 
early adulthood fear of adulthood stuff that kind of creeps into it, like career versus family or anything like that? Not really. No. Okay. I mean, that's for for Rosemary as a woman in in the mid 60s. That tension does not really exist. Okay. At least not in this book. And um, not what about her relationship with Guy? Like what? It, how does that the, change over the course of the book? I mean, the weirdest thing about her relationship with Guy is just like in a situation like this where something was desperately wrong, like your spouse should be the one person who you can count on to back you up and be in your corner. And in this case, she is, you know, if if not for Guy who is, you know, who has thrown his lot in with Satan so he can get better roles. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty, um, like, pretty condemning of yeah. the theatrical trade Levin <laughs> is for a playwright. Okay. Basically, every successful actor has done something for Satan. Basically, that's what it I doesn't heard. doesn't matter what. Like, <laughs> there's, a whole, there's a whole, like, monthly series on it in Backstage Magazine. I don't know if you know that. Um, On the casting couch with Beelzebub. Yeah, but like he he puts his career totally ahead of her, like a hundred percent ahead of her. Okay. To the and point she, where he I mean, she wants she to have a devil baby. Trust him, like that that trust is broken, and if not for Guy, none of this would have happened. Okay. You know, like they they turn him, and in doing that, they get their greatest ally in having in making a Satan baby. Well, and then put her into a state of at the time dependency. Yeah. And just like lying to her and shielding her from the truth. And I don't know, like prioritizing everything else in his life over her. So like, I don't know if that's really like a young couple thing. Okay. Fair I enough. I don't know. But like, like that's the, that's the most interesting dynamic about their relationship because like, you know, the first few chapters in the book, they do seem, you know, they seem like cute mm-hmm. and happy. Like they joke around with each other and, um, you know, guy can be a little busy at work or a little distant, but, um, and he can be a little frustrated with his work, but they seem, you know, they seem totally normal. Like I'm, I'm sure that a lot of us have had those kinds of, tensions in our in our lives like trying to balance work and family and whatever you're right yeah there, but there then was, he takes it to an extreme there seemed to be a, a kind of as much as there's a literary dialogue about this book it seemed to be along the same lines of people who want to and for better or worse kind of graft some sort of metaphor onto whatever zombie story is your favorite right mm-hmm. like did when he created Night of the Living Dead, or whichever one that was, was Romero talking <laughs> about consumerism because it yeah. was zombies in a mall? Like, maybe, but probably he just wanted to make a zombie movie. Is motherhood the devil? <laughs> yeah, like, is, <laughs> is you know, is having the devil inside you some sort of exaggerated version of anxiety over parenthood. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not, but maybe. maybe that's why it's scary to the reader. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's why it, it it feels true, even though it's crazy. 
um, because it's yeah. based on a real thing that happens. Like it's not like he invented a whole new thing that pregnancy happens to people. Yeah. Um, the book really, I mean, for all that it touches on stuff like, like, you know, family dynamics and, you know, the uh, woman is the protagonist and you spend all of your time with her. Um, and you know, it touches on religious stuff. Like it, it does not come off as a book that's trying to sell you a point or like an ideology ideology. Yeah. That's what, that's the um, impression I got from Levin and in, in reading yeah. about him. It really just, it really, he really seems occupied with just telling a compelling story, which he does. Yes. And sometimes a story is just a story. Like there, there are things in here to talk about obviously, but, um, well, and there's a yeah, similarity. Like everybody in the book, you know, you know, aside from the Satan worshippers, yeah. like <laughs> um, Rosemary is like agnostic-ish. Like she's just really ambivalent about religion. She doesn't think about it a lot. It has caused a rift in her family, who are all you know still devout Catholics. Well, and that helps deprive that character of a support system. Yeah, so that she, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's no one for her to turn to. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it dovetails. I think easily with something like Stepford where it's a character versus a system where no one in the system is telling them anything. Mm-hmm. It's like you exist in this society and you are slowly realizing that the the society around you is evil in some way yeah. and everyone's in on it except you and then by the end of it you're screwed. Yeah, that's basically that's basically the arc of this book. <laughs> so, where were the spooks, Andrew? It's Spooktober. What spooked you, or creeped you, or or eked you? The sp- I mean, the spooks are mostly in how just how thoroughly the characters isolate her and how creepy they are to her. Okay, how like creepy and controlling and and off-putting they were like one once you're seeing a devil baby it's like oh man there's a devil baby in there i was not i was not super spooked by him because he's just like a baby with yellow eyes and little claws you don't like turn the page and there's a picture of a devil baby right there yeah yeah it's not like a (laughs) pop-up book or something (laughs) but yeah the um the spooks are in the wait i think like the anticipation like you were saying and the like why aren't they telling her this or what are they hiding it's not even what are they hiding because, and I don't, I, I guess I don't know how a contemporary reader would have picked up on this, but in, you know, in 2014, we've seen these stories told enough and, you know, you have, everybody has some like base one or two sentence synopsis of Rosemary's baby, like burned into them somewhere. Yeah. Um, like from really early on in the book where like they're touring the apartment in the Bramford and they, you know, Rosemary sees a journal that the old lady was keeping and she catches a line that was like, Oh, I cannot in good conscience keep doing this or something like something that in retrospect, obviously is about the devil cult that, yeah, (laughs) that is in the book. But, um, well, and you're right to point out, you know, how this book standardized a bunch of tropes because I, the some of the articles I was reading definitely called out the the new home or the new place as a a really powerful trope in horror mm. fiction. Yeah, um, like yeah. you have like The Shining, and you have 
even something as recent as paranormal activity, like people for whatever reason move into a new place and then it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, like it's that's common. I think the creepy husband trope is common too. Like Yes. You marry someone who turns out to be not what they seem, or like in The Shining, where somebody just goes nuts mm-hmm. because of being in a creepy house. Um, yeah, I think a lot of that has its has its roots in Rosemary's Baby, and and yeah, it's about you know you are in a strange place, and the people you thought you could count on are not what you thought they were. It sounds horrible. Yeah, horrifying. So, I mean, and the uh, yeah, I guess the book. I mean, the book sets you up to be on edge about this house, like from the first time Hutch warns them that you know a bunch of people died there or whatever. Yeah, you you the reader are expecting something bad to happen, and so that's that's the the that's the one long spook that spans the length <laughs> of the book is just <laughs> like waiting to see what's going to happen, and then once you realize what's happening. It's like Rosemary, come on, get out of there, get out of there, Rosemary. It's like watching a roller coaster go up, and someone's like, "It's fine. This is just gonna. This is really pleasant going up. This is great. It's not gonna rocket me downwards into a vomit-inducing loop." This no, it's more like you're sitting on the the upward slope, and you. It's really pleasant, and everything is fine, but you know there's gonna be a drop. <laughs> well, for the reader, yeah, you know there's gonna be. You're waiting for that drop. You're waiting yeah. for that sick beat. <laughs> That's Rosemary's Baby, and like, you enjoyed it. I did. I really liked it. All I right. really enjoyed it. I'm glad I I'm glad I read it for Spooktober. For Spooktober. Now, on the other hand, Son of Rosemary. Oh yeah, we got to talk. I was I was all ready to move into the wrap up. We got to talk about Son of Rosemary. I'm going to give you. I mean, we don't have to talk about it for long because it's it's basically Rosemary wakes up in like 1999. She's been in a coma. Cool. And her son. Satan's big on comas, it seems like. Yeah, her son is the devil, but he's saying that, oh, I'm I'm good. I fought the evil part of me, and I'm just doing good. And then he, like, kills everybody in the whole world, and then Rosemary wakes up next to Guy in 1965, and nothing has happened. And Hutch calls her to say, you know, we've got the room in in this creepy house, well, actually, the the Bramford is revealed to be a fictional construct, and Hutch calls her to say, "Oh, I can set you up in the Dakota for a year for free, but it's like creepy." And then Rosemary is like, "No, I'm not going to do it this time." So they, I don't know, it was all a dream, basically. Or was it? <laughs> I can't even react to that it's dumb so not gonna read that one i'm gonna just say that this you know this book stands alone hey creative people making cool stuff when you make a cool thing that people like and other people turn it into a thing that more people like just let it be just let it like let it do its thing (laughs) i feel like there's got to be a statute of limitations right like it's like the new- it was. There were like thirty years between Rosemary's Baby and Son of Rosemary. It's like no, you waited too long. You could have followed this up at some point within you know the first decade after you published it, but now you're too far away from it, 
and whatever you do, George Lucas is going to be crappy and bad and just just don't precisely it's like this it's i mean it's not working out for them but it's like the spider-man movies they have to keep making those spider-man movies or else they lose the license and once they (laughs) lose the license they're not allowed to make them anymore now the problem is is they keep making bad ones but if ir11 had just kept churning out rosemary's baby sequels we wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to argue with him in the same way well if if he's churning out sequels in the way that like someone like Orson Scott Card has done. Oh God, come on! I think you eventually hit me in the you weak risk, spot, Andrew. Yeah, eventually you run the risk of undermining what made the first book so special in the first place. That I mean, I don't its think its own episode of this show yeah. is <laughs> sequels that ruin the original books. Yeah. Ugh. So. Ugh. But I think Son of Rosemary came out late enough and far enough after. Rosemary's Baby had become imprinted on the cultural consciousness that nobody really thinks about it. Yeah. Like it's always, it's always a surprise to people when you tell them that Rosemary's Baby had a sequel and that everything was a dream the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently they made like film slash TV slash TV miniseries sequels to it. Yeah. People have come back to the well a few times. That had nothing to do with Son of Rosemary. So I, I imagine by the time that Ira Levin himself got around to writing a sequel there, all the, any, any good idea, if there existed one, had been taken and, and run into the ground. So yeah. He was left with what he had. I suppose he was. So that's so Rosemary's that's what I got. Baby. <laughs> yeah. Rosemary's baby. You've been spooked. Um, thanks to everyone. Thanks to who's, who's, who suggested Rosemary's baby? Um, the Lee on Facebook was one of the people who mentioned it, um, when we solicited Spooktober ideas. So for the time being, I'm going to, I'm going to credit that to Lee was the first person to suggest it. Um, Rob also suggested Rosemary's baby or kind of followed up on it. Um, he wanted to know about son of Rosemary. (laughs) He said that. Uh, when he finished Rosemary's Baby, he wanted to throw it at the wall, but he didn't. And then when he finished Son of Rosemary, he did throw the book at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that to a book before or after, he says. <laughs> uh, so I want to thank everybody who's been following up on that Facebook thread. Uh, Nate is a newcomer to that thread, so thank you, Nate. And other people who tweeted at us this week... Uh, <laughs> uh, Jillian appreciates that we don't oversell the show. I think something to do with you tweeting. I don't know. We are we tend sure. to be pretty self-deprecating about the show. Uh, I want to welcome this stupid dumb show. I know it's pretty <laughs> dumb. I want to welcome uh, Todd and Cindy to the to the Twitter thread. They seem to be hopping on the bus, and and we want to fill this bus up. If you want to get on the bus, uh, you can bus. head on over to twitter.com/slash/overduepod or facebook.com slash overdue pod if i can get my stuff together I'll, I'll tweet out some of those writings from levin about rosemary's baby this week yeah cool um because they're they're pretty interesting it sets sets a pretty like genre specific bar for what he was trying to achieve which i mm-hmm. think is is helpful with reading this book andrew if they didn't want to email us at overduepod at gmail.com where where else should they go to find more informa- information 
Um, they can go to our website at overduepodcast.com, which is where we have uh, the current episode and our back catalog and the next couple books that we're going to be reading. Um, those big old pictures of books are actually Amazon links, <laughs> and you can click them and buy stuff and put some money in our coffers. They're not just is, cool art that we like. Yeah, this is me shaking a cup full of pennies at you. Like <laughs> If you want to support the show, that's the best way to do I it. I need um, a little change for my train to get back to the library so I can get more books for the show. <laughs> and um, we have also on OverduePodcast.com RSS and iTunes links um, that you can use to subscribe to the show. And if you subscribe in iTunes, please do take some time to rate and review us because um, that helps us out in the rankings and it lets other people know that the show is pretty good. It looks like we may have gotten a couple Oh, I didn't look. Oh, darn. new ones. Let me check it out real quick. Okay. Um I also want to give a specific shout out to Colleen on Facebook who wants me to find and post the unabridged version of my Nintendo game pitch that we talked about last week. Yeah, you're going to have to call up Reggie at Nintendo and see if he ha- if he still has it. If he has a copy. Um, I know I got the tape and everything back, but I am I have no idea where it is. It's probably in my parents' house somewhere. Your mom probably listens to it every day because she misses you. <laughs> um if if I can find it Oh, we have I to guess like it would be as it. fun for me to listen to Could it. Could we do like a mystery you. science theater commentary track to it? I think it would just be laughing. <laughs> I think it would just be a laugh track. I would pay legitimate money to hear you as a child on tape. <laughs> I would pay that money. Um, yeah, it looks like Princess SM and Blue78 have both given us five-star reviews on Thanks, guys. iTunes, so that's great. This book podcast is right up there with literary, disco, and books on the nightstand. If you love witty, insightful discourse concerning books, then subscribe. All right. That's going to go on our book jacket. When we have when we release the novelization of this podcast, <laughs> and then review it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading next week? Craig? So I thought I was going to read uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, but I ended up tracking down a copy of The Mountains of Madness by H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft, which has actually been very interesting to read because it's a little bit later in his writings, and it kind of references his earlier work a lot. He's created this bizarre little universe for yeah, himself. Yeah, he definitely has characters who weave in and out of stuff. Um, and I'd heard about The Mountains of Madness when um, apparently, apparently Guillermo del Toro would love to make a movie out of it. So I'd read a couple articles about that, tracked down a copy, and that's what I'm reading for next week. So if you have thoughts on Cthulhu or H.P. Lovecraft and I, I mean you, the listener, uh, want to send those in to us ahead of time, we'd be happy to talk about them on the show. Cool, cool. All right, everybody. Uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next Monday. Try to be happy. <laughs>